You are listening to the REI Mastermind Podcast. Join JD as he chats with industry-leading real estate experts and professionals. We learn from their experience and uncover the strategies to their success that we can implement into our own businesses and we can drive immediate results today. They share their experience and wisdom as we build the foundation to our own success. This is the REI Mastermind Network. We have Darren Smith with us here today. Darren is with sellmyhousetosmith.com. So make sure you head over to his website. And uh, I believe that's also your Facebook handle. Uh, but uh, definitely check out. There's a lot of there's some resources there for people. And I know that you and your team uh, put out some uh, pretty uh, entertaining videos out on uh, out on your Facebook here and there. We, we try and keep it fun. A little bit of mix of things that are helpful and uh, useful information and other just fun stuff like me riding on my one wheel or something like that. So, so you know, I, we're going to jump into like quite a few topics here, but I, I kind of wanted to start with how you started into real estate investing, because I know you have a military background and, and a lot of the people that work with you also are veterans. Yeah, great question, JD. So I was in the military back 2007, I'm sorry, 1997 to 2003. And when I got out, I was working as a, a government contractor doing uh, the computer field. And one of my coworkers who sat next to me was a small-time real estate investor. So he flipped a couple of houses, had a couple of little rentals, and that kind of just spawned it right there. I read a couple of books he recommended and shadowed him a little bit and, and that took it from there. Sure. So what did you, what did you jump into first? The first real estate investment I ever made was a live-in flip. So that was back in, in 2003, pretty much very soon after I got out of the military. Bought it from a, uh, a bank sale from a real estate broker who was another co-worker of mine. Lived in it for two years. And uh, I did quite well as everybody did back then from 2007 to you know roughly 2000, 2003 to 2007, 2008. Because the mm -hmm. market, not only would I have done well without it, but probably went up another 40,000, 50,000 on that first flip uh, just from crazy prices. Sure. And then now you, you seem to go more and more for your rental properties anyway. You, you talk about light industrial. What do you mean by light industrial rentals? I, I love the industrial space as a whole, but but especially the light industrial. And really, I specify that because I'm not buying, if you think of industrial, like major, like factories, um, you know, lots of people that are doing massive, like chemicals or, or things like that. Really, it's a lot of warehouse space, a lot of light manufacturing. Maybe they're making uh, furniture. Um, I have one one building where they used to make um, plastic parts for automobiles, but again, it's not this this heavy, heavy, uh, you know, intensive things where there could be environmentals and other types of assets going on. And I love the the light industrial sector. Just you're, I'm able to scale up significantly in the the price and the income of the property. With also, it's it's easier to manage. So at the same time, not only I'm making more money from them, but it's less work once you're into the property. Now, getting into them, it's a heck of a lot harder, and, and it's a very long process, and, and kind of another. You have to almost learn a little bit of another language when you get into the, mm -hmm. the commercial space. But once you have that down, uh, not that I do, uh, you can start picking up things and scale up from there. Sure. Well, I probably could be a whole episode in itself talking cool. about light industrial because uh, you know that's that's a topic we haven't really touched on yet. And uh, it's always been pretty intriguing, especially when you, you mentioned it's not as 
pro- property management heavy. I suppose when you get somebody in there who's making a, a business out of it, uh, they can they have a longevity. They stick around a lot longer. That definitely, they you know the turnover is much less frequent. Uh, it can be at least five. Uh, some of my tenants have been in for 10, 15 years. Not that I've owned the building, but have, have been there that long. And then the property management on them is significantly easier as well. You know, once you get somebody in, you have a good property management in place. A lot of times they take care of all the small maintenance items themselves and the other ones, you know, the property manager will take care of it. I haven't been to some of my buildings in over a year, year and a half. Sure. Well, let's go back to sellmyhousetosmith.com. One of the things that really stood out to me and that I think is is a really a refreshing message that I got right off the bat was that you kind of have a team that lives by a mantra that I think is really interesting and that I think everybody probably should take to heart. Every seller must benefit. That's absolutely right. We, we love that. That was on the back of our business cards for a long time. And what that really means is that we will absolutely not buy a property if the seller, if we're not putting them in a better place, you know, we always have to make sure that we're looking out for, for them and their interests. And we have lost deals because of that, where we've made less money because we do, we tell every seller, Hey, why, why don't you listen with a realtor? Boy, if you just did these couple of things, you know, put a little bit of money in, sell it, you could make more money. And one of two things happens, either they go off and they do that thing we recommend because it is a better option, or they'll tell us why that's not a good option for them. Hey, yes, I know I can make more money by doing this way or waiting, but I really need to solve this problem or I need to get to this place in this amount of time. And so I'm willing to give up a little bit of equity in order to make that happen. And why I love that that whole process and why our team um, uses that culture is that in the in the long run, I think not only do we help more people and we have a better reputation, but as a byproduct, we make more money because sellers will feel that. If you're talking to them and they truly know you have you have their best interest at heart, that comes through. That comes through in the conversation, and they, there's a, a bit more of a trust that you can build at that level, so you are able to help them get to that better place. Because that's our job as home buyers is to help these people. And if you can't earn their trust in this very sensitive time and, and this complicated decision, um, you're never going to be able to get them to their place, and they're going to be they're going to stay in that house, which is not their best option, and you're doing them a disservice. So. That's why we always say every seller must benefit. You're probably spending quite a bit of time with these uh, people too then. It, the, the process of purchasing the property and getting to closing, the, the timeline on that is so much dependent on the needs of the seller and then the property itself. We've closed properties in a matter of a couple of days when everything allows it and, then, and that is what the seller wants. And that's from first phone call to by the end of the week, you know, we're at the title company uh, changing over and they, they get their check in hand. We've had several properties. In fact, we just closed one last week where it was five, six months in the closing. And that wasn't because they didn't want to sell quickly. It was because it hadn't, it was in half and half of an inherited property hadn't gone mm-hmm. through probate yet. Um, we've had other ones where, you know, liens tracking down the lien holders and all these things. And these are problems that the seller would have to deal with no matter what, whoever they're selling to, we just have a lot of experience and we, more importantly, we have the connections with the attorneys and the title companies that know how to kind of handle all those little niche problems uh, that can really delay things and mess things up. So uh, yeah, the, the time uh, that we spend with these sellers can be very significant 
depending on what the needs of the house are. If it's easy, yeah, we, we can get it done very quickly. So, you know, you were talking about uh, building that trust then. Are there any, because a lot of the people that you're talking to, they're usually in a rough situation. And many times it, when you're having these conversations with them, it might be the first time that they've verbalized or vocalized what what their problems are. Have you found any, I don't want to call them necessarily strategies, but it, it, ways in which to get, earn their trust in a, in quickly? The best way that I know how to earn someone's trust, and we, we follow uh, our, our sales training method is with John Martinez. That's who we use. Mm-hmm. And it's really to just to make sure you're asking the right questions about their situation and to truly listen to them. You want to learn everything you can about them and their situation. And honestly, the house and um, you know the money and like, if, you, if you're thinking about, oh my gosh, I need to buy this house for X number of dollars and you're walking in the door thinking that, you're off to a bad start. You need to go in with this, this open mind, this um, just this ability to listen to someone and truly find out what is, what is their pain and how do I get them to a better place? And you know what, what, what's their picture perfect look like? And just ask those types of questions. It's pain and picture perfect. And then when they answer you, don't take that answer and be thinking of your next question or thinking of, oh, I know, I know how to solve that problem. Because if they tell you the first time and you're already thinking, oh, I've dealt with that problem on another house, I know how to fix this, and you tell them how to fix it, you're solving the wrong problem. You're, you're not truly listening to them. You need to ask them um, I think I forget what they're called, but they're like sympathetic statements where you're just like, really, you know, could you tell me a little bit more about that? Or, you know, that that's really interesting. That, that must be difficult. You know, what, what are you really looking to get out of that? And if you say those kind of things enough times, people will truly start to open up to you. And now you can solve their real problem and get them into the best place possible. Sure. Yeah. And if anybody is interested, uh, John has been on our show um, and uh the most recent one was probably, it's been a while. I probably better reach out to John again, but episode 87, if you want to check that out, uh, John is a wealth of knowledge when it comes to talking to sellers and, and yeah. handling situations. Um, and I, again, just to remind everybody, definitely head over and uh, I, I'm going to push people to your YouTube channel. Is it to sell, sell my house to Smith on YouTube as well? That's correct. It's on YouTube. And I, I haven't been as active out there as I'd like to. We're a little bit more on, on Facebook, but I definitely have some some good videos out there as well. Sure. So you were you were talking about um, different ways that you handle uh, your private lenders. Like how do you how do you work with uh, private lenders when it comes to your real estate investing? That's a that's a great question. And the reason I say that is I get a lot of people that they ask me like boy, how do you get so many private lenders? Or how do you have so many people that want to lend to you on your properties? Like, man, I'd love to get those rates. How do you get those rates? And it's, if you again, just like with a seller, if you're going in with your thought process is, boy, I'm trying to get this much money, or I'm trying to get this, borrow money at this rate, you're doing it, you're doing it wrong. You need to go in with that open mind of talking to that person, finding out what their situation is, finding out what their hopes and dreams are for their finances. Find out, um, you know, what what are they doing with their money now that they like or don't like, um, you know, from a risk perspective, from a growth perspective, from a timeline perspective, like how long 
If they lend you money, do they want it back in three months, a year when they retire? Are they looking to keep it out all the time and stay very active where they want to like know what's going on in the project? You know, maybe they watched a bunch of HGTV and they'd love to shadow you and, and see the flip that their money is, is funding. Or maybe they don't want to, when they wire that money over, they don't want to talk to you ever again. They just want to see the financial statements once a year. <laughs> and I have both. So that's the first thing you need to, to think of when you're trying to raise private capital is think of it from the other person's perspective. And again, just like with a seller of a house, same thing with the lender. What problem are you solving? How are you helping them get their, their hopes and dreams? And then it's building trust in you. So how do you get that person to trust you with their money? Track records and references are obviously a great thing. If you, if you don't have that, then what you need to emphasize is anything you've done in real estate at all. You know, just talk about, hey, I flipped a couple of houses. You know, I used my parents' money and I paid them back or whatever that may be. And then show them how you're going to secure their money. And that could be if you're buying properties at a discount, you know, hey, Mr. You know, Mr. Lender, Mrs. Lender, I'm borrowing this money, but look how much equity we're going to have left in this house. And if something went wrong, you know, you have a deed of trust secured to that property. There's this much left over that if something went wrong and, you know, if I got hit by a bus, I always use the, the hit by a bus analogy, what happens to my money? You're still protected. When that house sells, you get paid off um, and you, you get that money. I take it a step further as well. And I tell them, how all the payments are made. So if I have somebody where it's a flip, that's kind of nice and easy. You can walk them through it's secure the deed of trust. I take them through uh, how that works at the, at the first closing. And then when we sell how they wire in the payoff amounts, and then they get that money wired back if they want it. I have a lot of lenders who lend to me on long-term rentals, uh, properties that I'm holding for a while. And I, I love that setup because they're getting money all the time. It's not this back and forth. It's way less work for everybody involved, but they're getting a constant rate of return, you know, month after month, year after year, and they don't have to do anything. And those I set up as automated as possible. All of the payments are done automatically. It's all automatic transfers of the rent money coming in from the property, the payments going out to their, to their bank account. It automatically goes in if they are somebody who wants to receive payments um, and then, and then they get those annual statements where I touch base, touch base them, let them know what's going on. And even if I was to get hit by a bus, that would all automatically happen. And I have all of my systems on, I, I do little, um, loom videos. So it's a, it's like a screen capture video. And that allows me to walk through like logging into my bank account, how I make, how the payments are made, how it's all set up. And my wife knows where all of that is. So she's watched them all. She's seen it all. So she kind of has that idea. Um, so she could even take care of that, uh, you know, should, should I get hit by that proverbial bus and, and something happens? So let your investors know they're secured, they're taken care of from beginning to end and that you've done this and, and you know, you got, you got their back and their money is safe. Well, since you brought up your wife, like how involved is, is she in, in this endeavor? Uh, she is a great counsel to me, uh, but she is not involved in real estate in, in any way. Sure. No, it's always interesting to to talk about the spouse. And what did she think of it when you initially uh, broached this subject? <laughs> she she thought I was a uh, a bit crazy, um, not so much for wanting to do real estate, but just the way I went about it. I, I think uh, not think I know I have a bit of a higher risk tolerance than she does. So I was in computers for about 17, 18 years at a pretty high level, and I overlapped a lot of that with with doing real estate as well. And coming up on five years ago, I got downsized uh, from my last computer job. I was a remote consultant. And 
I had been in real estate a couple of years, kind of back in it uh, after, after a furlong from getting hurt pretty bad in the last crash. And I was making some money. I was doing okay. In fact, there was a few months there where I'd replaced my computer income, you know, technically. And I thought I can do this. I don't really need to go get another job. And I, uh, let's just say I haven't gone back. I haven't got another job, but it took not in a couple months to replace my salary and get to a better place, but it took me a couple of years to reach that point. So we're five years in now and, uh, you know, life is a lot better, but let's just say the way I handled that transition, you want to make sure you have your spouse on board a lot better. And I could have been better in communicating with her. And so anybody out there that's thinking of like quitting their job and saying, man, I'm going all into this. I would say, get to a point where you've consistently done that for a year where you've you know, have that type of income, especially if you have rentals, that's the best way to do it. Because if you're flipping, that's a little hit or miss, uh, even if you replace your income. But if you have mm-hmm. a rental income coming in, now you're at a point where you can safely do that. And then also just have that real conversation with your spouse uh, who may or may not be as involved as you to make sure that they're fully on board. Yeah, no, that's that's great advice. And, and uh, you should learn from uh, Darren's experience here. Uh, if you're uh, if you're thinking about this, uh, it's that consistency that uh, is a really big indicator. Um, if you uh, if you had to get into start it all over again, are there anything that you would have done differently? There is. I uh, besides being a better communicator with my spouse, <laughs> with with Lauren, what I would have done was I would have gone. Uh, I would have, I would have gotten more focused be honest. I I started flipping, realized buying houses was the tough part in that market. And so that was when I I transitioned a lot over to wholesaling. So even still, we do about probably 90-10 on the wholesaling side versus flipping. But what I would have done was I, I tried marketing to the city. I did every marketing channel, you know, Facebook ads, postcards, Abandoned signs, uh, you know, website. I, I spent money everywhere you could think of, uh, and that, that's just a couple. And I went wide too. I was in two different markets at that time. I was in Pueblo, Colorado, and Colorado Springs, uh, Colorado, and uh, you know, just I, I I was all over the place. And then I hired really quickly within a year of getting started. I hired like three people, which was you know good and bad. I learned a lot through that process, and they were good people. But I didn't have my stuff together enough to be able to guide them and, and run the company. And so if I was giving advice to somebody starting off, I would say pick one, you know, focus at least one thing, either focus in a very small, maybe like you like a certain zip code. Maybe you have an, an area of a couple thousand houses, you know, neighborhood that you really, you want to master and maybe take that step further and narrow on one marketing channel. I'm going to get really good at direct mail. I'm going to get my data management down. We use REI SIFT for our data management and we love it. And, you know, really just master my data. And then that one marketing source where I'm hitting the, the prime targets, or maybe I'm only going to be, it's going to take a little longer, but I'm going to build my website up and do SEO and get leads that way or, or Google ads or whatever it is. Um, and then once you've, once you're making money out of that, that narrow focus, then add one more thing in at a time, add that next marketing channel, or maybe expand your territory a bit more uh, and go from there. So if I was getting started out to keep my costs down and get um, become the best I can at one thing, that's what I would do. Sure. Let's say you are in a situation where uh, you're starting out for the first time, you know, wholesaling is, is it seems like that's where everybody targets when they first get into real estate investing. What is the most effective way that you've found to, to market to potential sellers? Uh, that's a, 
pretty loaded I, I, question, isn't it? Well, it's it's a question that every six months I'm, I would probably give you a different answer. That's what makes that tough. So we have found at any given time success in any one of those segments, but I would I would have to go back to stealing a little bit from my previous answer, where if you could really find those niche people that you want to target. So instead of sending thousands of postcards a month, maybe your whole area is 5,000. So you don't want to mail 5,000. Well, some people just say, okay, I want to mail ones that have 60% equity or more, 40% equity or more. Well, you can do that, but that's still a really big number. Take it even further. Um, the, the best the results you're going to get are people that truly have motivation. So dig into like, like PropStream, where you can find out if they have liens on their property. Uh, REI SIF tells you if it's a vacant property, um, absentee owned, and then take those and you can you can uh, set the number, like whatever your budget is that you want to mail to based on how many things you want to stack. So if you're like, hey, I can afford to send, you know, 300 letters per month, or maybe I'm going to handwrite them or whatever, then just stack a couple more things on. So you're getting the most niche and the most targeted you possibly can. That's where you're going to find the most motivation that you possibly can. And then your budget grows a little bit, maybe add in one more thing that you can do. Now, instead of maybe just doing liens and, and uh, you know, tax liens and federal liens, now you're adding in divorce properties or, or, right. or vacant or whatever whatever the scenario might be. So that's where you're really going to find uh, the best bang for your buck. And, and honestly, we've, in our company, we have narrowed down to that in some way where we have, we're not doing as wide. We're doing a little bit more targeted marketing uh, for some of our more expensive forms of marketing. Sure. Have you found any way to stand out? Like if you're doing direct mail, like uh, you're in a market, Colorado, Colorado Springs, I'm sure it's pretty competitive. Have you found a way to to stand out from from all the other postcards people are getting? The also a tricky question to answer because you can really stand out if you you know bold colors, neon pink, and things like that. People are going to see you, and you may get your phone ringing off the hook if you say like third notice and and something a little more flagrant. So you'll get calls and you get notice, but that may not be what you're looking for. It's a little bit of a trade off in whether you want to go as cheap as possible. So you're hitting the people when they, the, the most frequency of time, which we have found to be a little bit, to be more effective, or you can go more expensive, but now you're hitting them with something a little more custom. There's uh, mailers out there that'll have like handwritten addresses on them and an actual stamp on it. Not like a, not the bulk mail type stuff. It can cost you, you know, considerably more to do those types of things. So if you're saying, Hey, I'm going super niche. I mean, maybe you have a little bit bigger budget, but you have, let's say 10% of your mail you're going to do that month is this very niche thing. Maybe those you step up to a hand addressed envelope with a stamp. And then the 90% you're mailing, you do the, the 35 cent, you know, 40 cent postcards that look like everybody else's. That way you're getting both the bulk um, as well as the targeted as well. But you can stand out. You just got to make sure you stand out for the right thing. And I'll, I'll add one more thing on there. I mail to light industrial properties or industrial properties in my area but it's a very small list, well, at least small from my standards. Um, it, it's a couple of thousand in South Central and Southeastern Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. I actually, I have, it's hand addressed, stamp on it, handwritten letter. They use an actual pen to do it. Um, and then we get a mail to my house and I put my business card in them. So my business card costs 40 cents, even in bulk. It, it's, you know, so it's a very expensive mailing to do this, but the the call rate is phenomenal. I literally have a lot of people that call me and just say, 
hey, you know, thank you for your letter. I got your letter. You know, we're actually not selling at this time, um, but, you know, appreciate your interest. So it's to that point where people think like think you're actually just writing them, which is exactly what I want. I want that personal touch. But for houses, I wouldn't go that far. I think for, for most of them that I would say cheaper and hit them more frequently would be the side that I would err on for somebody starting out. Sure. So, well, I, like I said, it looks like you and I could probably chat more and more. And I'd, I'd, if you're open to it, I'd like to have you back on just to talk about the light industrial uh, and, and how you run those numbers. And I'm sure there's a lot of detail that we could really go down uh, regarding that type of an investment. But if you're looking for more information from Darren, head over to sellmyhouse2smith.com. And um, before we wrap up, my last question is, is there a question you wished I would have asked you today? You know, I'm drawing a blank. You, you caught me on that one. So I think we, we had a great conversation. Thank you for your time, JD. I really appreciate your time. And this has been a great conversation. And I hope we can uh, chat about that uh, light industrial investing sometime. Would love to. This has been the REI Mastermind Network. You can already tell that we've made some changes and a few more are on the way. If you are interested in what we have planned, head over to patreon.com slash REI Mastermind and support the show today. Financial contributions are always appreciated along with a like, share, and review. It really helps us grow and reach more people with this valuable information. See you next time and tell a friend.